The Scribbler once said, The time for talk has come to an end, my sucklings! This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about the fifth part of Rise of the Rune Lords, Sins of the Saviors. Now, no real recap, but we are going to say that after the last module, the party has defeated Machmurian and is no doubt going to hang out for a little while, check out the library, learn a bunch of things about the Empire of Thassalon, and then eventually return to Sandpoint. Doesn't matter why particularly they return to Sandpoint, it's kind of their base of operation now and when they do return they're going to get a hero's welcome for once not only a hero's welcome but it even says in the module a little bit of hero worship which might be going a little far but hey you know these people have saved sandpoint one two three times now three times a lady they've rescued sandpoint from goblins they've rescued sandpoint from a serial killer they've rescued sandpoint from ravenous stone giants i mean frankly they've just been rescuing the heck out of sandpoint so what do they need to do now well there's a big hole in the middle of Sandpoint. Could you rescue us from whatever's down there? Rescue Sandpoint again. Got it. We're on this. Now, the reward they get for this is pretty small. Another example of how heroes tend to outgrow their surroundings because the reward's only going to be about 2,000 gold pieces. If they were first level characters, that's a massive sum of wealth and it's one of the most fantastic things they've been offered. At this point, though, kind of underwhelming. Not going to be that exciting. But you know what? They're probably going to go down into that hole and rescue the town because that's what heroes do. So what do they find in the hole. They find a shrine to Lamashtu. Not just that, but all over the walls are these weird scribblings in a weird ancient language. I think it's ancient Thessalonian. Ah, Interestingly, one of the party members may very well speak Ancient Thessalonian by now, or may have started the campaign able to speak Ancient Thessalonian. Totally possible. More importantly, it's worth noting that because this is a hidden shrine of Lamashtu that's been under Sandpoint this whole time, it's rather a throwback to the very first scenario in this adventure path, wherein the major villain was a priestess of Lamashtu who was contacted by Lamashtu during the course of a fever dream. It all makes sense. Every Everything comes around full circle. And that's one of my favorite things about how Paizo writes these things is they do a great job of linking things back. Not only is it thematically connected to the first module, it's actually physically connected to the first module. The dungeon that was underneath Sandpoint is connected to this part of the Shrine of Lamashtu, where you fought the Sin Spawn and the little Quasit Demon. You go down from there into this shrine. Now, this shrine is filled with spider webs and fog, and you get turned around in here. It's warded against you, and it's because the guardian of this place is a person known as the Scribbler. Now, the Scribbler wasn't always called the Scribbler, but since he's been resurrected by Lamashtu, he has gone insane and has been writing prayer to Lamashtu all over the walls. While you're in the shrine, you do need to read all of the walls and find a five stanza poem to figure out more about what's going on. Yep, the scribbler's rhyme is, If magic bright is your desire, to old rune forge you must retire. For only there does wizard's art receive its due and proper start. On eastern shores of steaming mirror, at end of day when dusk is nearer, where seven faces silent wait, encircled guards at rune forge gate. 
each stone the grace of seven lords, one part a key each ruler hoards. If offered spells and proper prayer, take seven keys and climb the stair. On frozen mountain, Zin awaits. His regal voice in yawning gates. He turns twice in Sahidran. A culted runeforge waits with on. And now you've come and joined the forge. Upon rare lore your mind can gorge. And when you sloth the mortal way, in runeforge long your work shall stay. I mean, that's that's a pretty neat little poem that they threw in there. And it gives you all the information that you need as the player characters to get into this runeforge. What is this runeforge? According to the lore, which... A quick little aside, this module isn't my favorite. It's, it's in fact my least favorite module in Rise of the Rune Lords, but it is dripping with lore. This is the point where the player characters are going to learn everything that was going on before, how it all ties together, and all the history of ancient Thassalon. Now, the Runeforge itself was a place where the Rune Lords sent their mages to advance the fields of magic. In their great mages would unlock secrets and become even more powerful and it was a place that the rune lords themselves couldn't go the scribbler actually was trying to get there before a horrible fate befell him and he died right in order to get to the rune forge the player character need to get the clues from that poem and then as long as they're here they might as well deal with what the townsfolk send them to deal with which was the horrible howling sounds coming from down here it turns out there's a pack of hounds bound to lamash to down here that they need to kill and also a glabrazu demon which is interesting because glabrazu demons have the power to grant wishes it doesn't even mention this in the module but if you look at their monster manual entry it's in there so it's totally possible that particularly clever player characters might be able to force this Glabrazoo into doing so, but Glabrazoos who grant wishes have the power to twist those wishes and or curse the people who do them. So, you know, there's stuff like that, but that's a little bit under the surface and probably not really going to come up. Just an interesting aside. After you deal with this Shrine of Lamashtu, you kill the Scribbler. Interesting little combat. He does hit-and-run tactics, but nothing that the player characters can't really deal with. And as a guy who hasn't been dealing with people for a 10,000 years. He really liked to know what's going on, and he starts out pretty talkative and chatty and willing to discuss things before abruptly deciding that he's done talking and going to kill everyone. So after that, you really need to find the Runeforge. You have the poem, and you just kind of have to figure out what's going on. A knowledge arcana or history check uh, reveals a bit of information about the legendary place, Runeforge, and if you do some research at the library at Jorgenfist, you can figure out all sorts of extra information about Runeforge. There's a little chart that ranges from a DC-33 check to learn that the agents of the Rune Lords are there, all the way up to a DC-50 check, which is really just extra information uh, that I don't even need. So the player characters have to travel to a place called Rhymeskull. And once again, there's going to be all sorts of random encounters along the way, but... Actually, no, it, it, here it says that they can just use greater teleport or windwalk or they don't really need a random encounter to get here. Poof. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. We've already discussed why random encounters are kind of a thing, and hopefully we can do a full episode on random encounters sometime. Eh, at some point. Anyway, so once you get to Rune Forge, you need to head up the mountain and get to a Sahedrin Circle. But on your way there, of course, you're going to get messed with by several bad guys, most notably a white dragon who wakes up when you open the skull mouth of this Rune Forge area, and the ancient earth elementals that have been 
tasked with guarding this place who really aren't that big a threat to the player characters except in their ability to push them around and presumably off of the nearby cliffs. Now, having a dragon fight here, and it, yeah, it's a, it's a CR-15 dragon fight. This is interesting and cool, but this dragon runs away when he has 100 hit points left. Most of the time, that means he's going to be running away. And it says that the dragon then follows and harries the players at a point later, really up to the DM, whenever it's most interesting for the DM to throw a dragon at them again. I like this section, though, because you get to use the poem to try and figure out the exact way to get into Runeforge. There are these skulls around, and you need to get the keys out of them. And the way that you do that is you have to identify which one of these giant heads are which of the ancient rune lords, which schools of magic those rune lords were attuned to, which ones they really exemplified. Cast a spell on them, you then get a key out of it, and then go up the stairway into the mountainside itself. Or like smash him with a hammer and take 26 points of electricity damage each time, but hey, you can just get the stuff you need. Or uh, force the stuff with a use magic device check. I mean, all of those are options. But honestly, cast spells. It's probably the right way. Anyway, then you get into Runeforge, which is uh, Runeforge. It's a place. There's a gateway portal that brings you in there, and then there's a hub that goes off in several directions, which correspond to... Da-da-da-da! The Seven Deadly Sins which represent the seven powers of magic under the Thessalonian schools. Now, John and I were mentioning how it's kind of interesting that there are eight schools of magic, but in ancient Thessalon they had uh, really seven schools that they focused on. Every single one of them could have access to divination, which point John pointed out, wait a second, that sounds a lot like old second edition. Yeah, back in second edition, there were eight schools of magic, and you could specialize in any of them, but all of the schools had some access to divination, which was considered the weakest school. In fact, when you had to give up two different schools in order to take every other school, except for Illusion, which required three schools because it was considered the most powerful type of magic, divination only required you to give up the school of conjuration, which is arguably one of the weakest schools anyway. We did notice, though, that the Pathfinder versions don't map the same way to the schools as in second edition. Uh, as an example, Abjuration, the Envy Magic, that's Alteration and Illusion as the opposed schools back in the old second edition days, but now it's Evocation and Necromancy. So, Runeforge itself is a big dungeon. There are seven different hallways, and I really don't like it at all. It's... <sighs> Each of the hallways says, hey, once you figure out which school of magic is here, there are no tricks. You go to the end, and there's a boss fight. Each and every one of the hallways does that. And for me, learning about ancient Thassalon and learning about the Rune Lord magic, I was expecting there to be something something more. Maybe like a hidden area underneath that you'd have to unlock by going into the different hallways in the correct order. Or maybe there was some grand design. I mean... At the end, you are going to get rune-forged weapons, which are cool, but the dungeon itself is a little underwhelming. 
So let's just go through each of the different hallways real quick and say something cool and interesting about them. Okay, so there's seven halls and they can be broached in any particular order, but the order they're given in the book is what we're going to go with just because it's simpler to keep an order. So Envy is the first one and that's the abjurant halls. It's the closest one to the hub because of course Envy wants to be closer to the center of everything. And it's also the smallest one. There's not really a lot going on in here. In the original version, really the only only thing that was in here was a staff that pulses and blows up your magic items. Kind of sucks, but it still is an interesting thing to have in a dungeon. In the anniversary edition, there's a fiendish mustard jelly, which mustard jelly sounds pretty fiendish to begin with. Ooh, yuck. So after that is the ravenous halls of gluttony. Now the uh, halls of gluttony are a pretty standard dungeon crawl. There's nothing really special going on here, but also nothing really bad. It is, of course, because it's necromancy, it's filled with undead of various sorts, mostly wraiths, but there's a dread zombie, and there's also the boss himself, which is a lich. And that's a pretty standard solid boss fight, the sort of thing that you would expect from a dungeon crawl like this. If this was the only one that was like this, just a straightforward fight the monsters dungeon crawl, this would be a great module. I don't know, Wrath, of course, would probably be one too, but uh, then we move on to Greed, which is Transmutation, the Vaults of Greed. Now, the Vaults of Greed, I was reading through going, okay, this is boring, okay, this is boring, oh, look it, there's a boss fight at the end. But, the one thing that it has going for it that actually might be interesting for the players and might be fun to play through is the Pool of Elemental Arcana. Now, this pool has the ability to recharge magic items. Isn't it cool to have these magic items that are super powerful but have charges? It is, but then they run out of charges, and what are you going to do with an empty wand or an empty staff? Nothing. You're going to throw it away. But if you have some of them, if you have if you have a wand that's down to three charges, or if you have a staff that's down to one charge, you might be able to recharge it here. That seems kind of broken, actually. Well! First of all, there's only about a 50% chance that you're actually going to get recharged when you dip it in there. There's a additional 25% chance for a total of 75% chance that nothing bad is going to happen. 25% chance of nothing really happening. But then anything below uh, 26 on a D percentile roll is going to either get you a backfire where the pool drains some of the charges from the items and then blasts you and then beyond that there's about a three percent chance that the item explodes and is destroyed and the explosion is going to blast a large amount of random energy at the characters in the area now those are all fairly remote chances and you have a good chance of being able to recharge some items but there's even an aside about how this might be a game breaker in the original module where they basically explains uh stephen greer explains that when he play tested it his group loved it they blew themselves up a couple of times and then decided that it probably wasn't worth putting too many more items into the pool like just a few things to get some power back but in general moving on plus you can't take the pool with you so it's here at runeforge to be used once or twice and then never mentioned again for the rest of this entire campaign now the fourth part is the iron cages of lust and once again you really want to know what your player characters are okay with green keep going let's let's do this more more come on Oh, okay, cool. Iron Cages of Lust are uh, full of 
Sukubai and her children, a bunch of Alu demons. And uh, there's a lot of nastiness to go around. It's got sort of a S&M theme to it. Maybe a little bit subtle and a little bit completely out there. It's one of those things where you could play it to just like a really vague level to give you an idea of what kind of things must go on in these chambers. Since it's mostly going to be a combat encounter anyway. Or you could play it to the hilt and make this a really nasty romp through a bunch of really creepiness. There's even a dude in there named Mr. Mutt who's been beaten down for, what, 10,000 years? And basically believes he's a dog at this point. Yeah, 10,000 year old submissive seems uncomfortable at best. (laughs) What's even more uncomfortable is the idea of a bedazzled butt plug. Yeah, yeah, because uh, in order to create the runeforged weapons you need, you need to capture one of the bejeweled toys that the demons have down here and bring it to the runeforge. So uh, that can be as explicit or as vague as you decide it is. And this is another place where you're going to need to know what your player's boundaries are. We want to be right in that yellow zone where it's like, okay, a little uncomfortable, but also very pleased with that discomfort. You know, that pleasant sensation of approaching your limits. Perfectly good. We don't want to go into anything orange or red at this point. This has got to be right on the boundary of where we want to be. And with your players, that might be very tame. And with your players, it might be very wild. Know your players and their limits. The next part is the shimmering veils of pride. And of course, pride is all about illusion. And in here, there's a peacock the size of a wyvern. Oh, this thing's gonna peck our eyes out, isn't it? It's not real. Oh, yeah, illusions. Okay. And then there's four wizards here, too. Just four identical wizards. In the anniversary edition, they upped the number to six. What? Okay, so there's all these identical wizards. Definitely illusions as well. Actually, no, those ones are just clones and have spellcasting abilities and are really gonna upset you and hurt you and... I'll admit, even though I criticize this part as being, okay, you, you go through the hallway and then there's a boss fight. A boss fight with six identical wizards is kind of cool. It is, actually. Um, every time I look this over, I'm like, man, this is, is going to be a total Charlie Foxtrot of spells getting cast all over the place and messing you up. But they're also carrying a lot of fairly valuable equipment as well. The way this section of the dungeon is set up is there's that large peacock and a great big open room and then like nothing else. And at the very back, there's a secret door that leads to the actual location of the guy Vrexeris's lair, where he's dead. He's He's been dead for a minute now. But he was writing a journal that gives you a lot of the information you're going to need in order to actually deal with this whole area. Next is the Maze of Sloth. Now, Sloth is based on Conjuration. So, going into this area, I'm assuming there's going to be a bunch of summoned monsters and whatnot. In the original, there's nothing. It is literally an empty part of the maze. There's a maze. It it says the festering maze. And then it's like a four paragraph blurb about how there's nothing worth finding in here. It's all garbage. If you really need to throw in a few low CR encounters, then go ahead. But other than that, it should really just be a useless empty part of the dungeon. Which is funny because to me, it feels like the aura of sloth was so powerful. It hit the designers on this one. The anniversary edition though, as you pointed out to me and as I got a chance to look at holy crap it's probably the best part of this entire crawl it has a puzzle section you have to work your way through a maze there's a lever puzzle where you get to clear out this sewer like area which is fun there's elder water elementals in there and at the very end of it you find this demonically obese 
mage who's probably the most powerful enemy in this dungeon and he would be more powerful if he weren't so lazy he's incredibly lazy he's so lazy that he made a deal with the demon to replace some of his vital organs with a magical heart that will keep him alive forever but he just sits around all day and does nothing in fact he's so lazy that he has a magic item a manual of gainful exercise plus two that he's just never had the energy to go through you know, it would have increased his stats, but eh, no, who needs two more points of constitution? It's not that important. I'm just going to sit on my throne. Most importantly, though, he's figured out the components you need for the rune-forged weapons, and this is a great place to drop that in. In the original module, it's just something the player characters kind of have to figure out from knowing Thessalonian magic or using divination or researching or whatever. And honestly, that works, but also it's kind of tedious. This gives them pretty much explicit directions. And all of the things that are needed are really interesting and very flavorful. For sloth, you need an admixture of four humors. Like what? Like dirty comedy? Like uh, childish comedy? Dad humor? Is that in there? No, no. It would be the four classic humors. Blood, phlegm, collar, and melancholer. Incidentally, melancholer is not actually a thing in real life. The ancients mistook blood clots for a fourth fluid in the body. True story. Greed, you need waters from the pool of elemental arcana. So if you take some water out of that pool, you have what you need to uh, runeforge a weapon of greed. Let's see. Lust, it says one of the succubi's personal toys, perhaps. As I said, bejeweled butt plug. Gluttony, some of that delicious wine, yes. And Wrath, ashes from anything in the Hall of Wrath. So let's go to the Hall of Wrath. It's the last place that we haven't gone to. Okay, the Hall of Wrath. Um, Pretty uh, straightforward boss fighty stuff. Kind of a gauntlet of combat encounters, as I recall, right? It is. Literally starting with something called the uh, Iron Guardian and then moving on beyond there. As I mentioned before, if this was the only hallway that had just fight after fight after fight ending with a boss fight, I'd go, okay, that makes sense. It's Wrath. But the other halls likewise go through and you end with a, a mini boss fight, and it feels like it robbed something special away from Wrath. But that really doesn't matter too much. You go through, you defeat the boss there, you get some ashes from there, and now you have everything you need to make a runeforged weapon. So here's the most interesting thing about not only this module, but possibly this campaign. All throughout, from the very beginning up till now, the DM has been keeping track of the actions that the player characters have made. Whether they're particularly virtuous or particularly vicious. Whether they've been prideful, slothful, kind, loving, and keeping track of it in secret. When you make a weapon, you can only properly make a runeforged weapon for your particular vice. You can only use runeforged weapons for your particular vice. And you're going to need a dominant weapon. Dominant weapons are full of illusion and enchantment, which oppose transmutation, greed. And upon making this, you, the player characters, have some of the most powerful weapons you have. You're getting a plus two enhancement to your weapons for free. This is awesome. This is wonderful. This is a wonderful end of the module. You know, I was thinking that there'd be some sort of big boss fight at the end, but you know, all the mini boss fights throughout this, I, I understand. No, you, you've completed this and it's the end of the module. Actually, as soon as you enhance the runeforged weapons, a great big statue of Karzug in that room comes to life and attacks you as a greater stone golem. 
And honestly, it's it's a powerful fight, but at the same time, it's kind of underwhelming. It's not a super exciting monster to have to deal with. But it is a chance for Kazu to taunt you yet again and to tell you that you're never going to get your weapons all the way to Zin Salas to fight him anyway, so it's purely irrelevant. But you should get at least one dominant weapon out of this. That would be the ideal because it's especially powerful not only against Karzug, but against a number of his minions along the way. And on top of that, it's just a good enchantment. That was another interesting thing is that these modules are kind of an introduction to an ancient system of magic that existed before the current system of magic and follows different rules. And the player characters should rightfully kind of take an ancient technology sort of feeling from it. Like this is the secrets of the ancients. This is the world before our world. And for that reason, I think it's very fitting that it kind of falls in line with that second edition feel of magic. And I think that that was an intentional homage. This idea of this is how the ancients did their magic. And now the ancients are the players who played way back in the second edition days. So as I mentioned, overall, this is my least favorite module in this adventure path. But if run well, if the DM focuses on the player characters getting the lore about learning about ancient Thassalon, about learning about Thassalonian magic, I think that it can overcome the dreariness and pitfalls of this module. One thing I want to mention is that the reason we're doing this series, as we've already said, is because there's a lot we can learn from this adventure design. I think one of the things that this adventure does do well is that it gives you kind of an in-your- face feel for the lore of an ancient empire. It does a good job of pushing the agenda of these ancients, making you understand what they were trying to accomplish, what their thought processes were, how they did things, and what kind of minions they had. The relationship not only to the outer planes beyond our plane, but also to this world itself. In doing this, it does a good job of giving you a feel for that lore. I like that, and I think that as DMs, we should be doing a good job of inserting lore. Where it falls short, I think, is kind of enforcing that lore on the player characters in ways that might not be ideal. Because really what we want to do is we want to make the players feel engaged with the lore on their own terms and in ways they find pleasant and playable. So, up next, we have the sixth and final module in the Rise of the Rune Lords adventure path, the Spires of Zin Shalast. Once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. You, again. I can't help but be inspired by your optimism, but, alas, your weapons will never reach Zin Shalast. Your fate is death here in Runeforge. Rune Lord Karzug. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at savevsrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.